Today's episode is sponsored by the Flipped Learning Global Initiative. At the end of the show, I'm going to share how flipped learning has morphed into something new and exciting called Flipped Learning 3.0. But for now, let's get on with the show. BAM Radio Network. What you want to do is get from people having a fear of change to a fear of what will happen if we don't change. Another key responsibility for a leader is developing a purposeful community. Why is this important? It really is starting with why. It's getting a sense of, we would call it moral purpose, of why are we doing this? What is it that we're all about? And when you start there, that's really the outcomes that matter to everybody. Welcome to ASCD Learn, Teach, Lead Radio, where you'll hear engaging conversations between ASCD emerging leaders, leading authors, experts, and practitioners on the topics that matter to today's educators and impact the success of every child. I'm your host, Mike Janatovich, and I'm joined by my guest, Brian Goodwin, via Skype. Brian is the author of multiple books, including The 12 Touchstones of Good Teaching and Balanced Leadership for Powerful Learning. Brian, welcome to the show tonight. All right, well, let's get to the conversation. Managing change is one of the key responsibilities of any leader, school leaders included. Can you give me some advice on how leaders can learn how to properly evaluate the magnitude of a change they're involved in? Yeah, that's a good question. In fact, that's one of the main the main things that we picked up on in our research was this idea that there are really two types of change for people, for individuals, uh, first order change and second order change. And, and it's important to think about this not in terms of what the change is for the school overall, but really the individuals react differently to change. So I'll give you an example. Maybe where you know, you're moving to uh, standards-based report cards, for example. For some teachers, Maybe they've been waiting their whole careers for that to happen. And so it makes a whole lot of sense for them. They know how to do it and they're ready to move forward. Or maybe they, they get it so deeply that even though there's some uncertainty and some anxiety about how to get there, they're still moving forward. They're gung-ho about it. But you might have other teachers um, in the same school who would look at that change and say, you know, I don't, I don't know what's being asked of me here. Or I don't quite get what, what we're trying to do. And they're going to resist and push back. And so it's it's really the same kind of idea that we talk to teachers about differentiating their instruction based upon student needs. As leaders, we have to differentiate our leadership based upon where people are. And that may mean spending more time with certain folks to say, let's talk again about the purpose of why we're doing this. Let's talk about the big picture of why this is important. And maybe even reassuring them that, that they have a role in this. They have a part to play. And sometimes folks are just saying, okay, I get that. Just show me what to do. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. And then helping people be really clear about what's being expected of them. And what are some consequences then when the change is improperly estimated? Yeah, well, the wheels start to come off, right? So (laughs) what starts to happen is that if you don't realize that people are struggling with the change, sometimes as a leader, you might think, oh, I've been so clear about this. I've really articulated everything. Why are people resisting me? And it can get very contentious, and you find yourself spending a lot of time on those issues um, instead of really moving forward. You know, for example, maybe as a leader, sometimes for me, I'm a big picture person. I love that. I don't really get hung up on the details. But if I'm only leading that way, if I think as long as I get people the vision and they'll all move forward, that's usually where the wheels come off too. Sometimes people are really, or we may have leaders that are very much, they're about the details and they feel like they've given all the details. But people are still saying, but I don't know why we're doing this yet. So we have to back up sometimes and explain that. So that's really what's going to happen. Um, what we found is that when we looked at the research, there were several reasons that, that people would say they would find their leaders not performing well. And it usually had ties right back to those ideas of, of second-order change and saying, you know, I don't feel like I'm being communicated with well here. That's one thing. 
or I'm not being involved in, in decisions. That's another area where they might feel like their leaders are falling down on the job. And so the important thing is to, to make sure that we're mapping or that we're really assessing there's all kinds of reasons people might resist this change. Let's plan ahead for that, and then everything will go much more smoothly. Excellent. And when you talk about once you identify what the magnitude of the change is and we need to make the change, there's really two ways that a leader can create demand for a change in the school. One is discontent with current reality, and the other is envisioning a more attractive reality. Can you describe some situations in which each one is more appropriate and explain how a leader would go about creating demand through these methods? Yeah, and actually, you're probably going to do both at the same time. So let's say we're, we we realize that we need to, uh, maybe it's a big change. We're, we're going to move towards more personalized teaching practices, right, or personalized learning. That's a big change. So one of the first things you want to do then is, is explain to people why going about things the way we've been doing it is insufficient. And it, there may be data that you're pointing to, or you, maybe you're saying, you know, the world has changed around us, or we can't predict what our students' lives are going to be like 20, 30 years from now. So we have to figure out how to give them more opportunities to be exploring through inquiry-based learning and so forth. So you kind of create the discontent with that. But then it's also important to say, but let's imagine, though, that when we do this really well, our kids will be curious, they'll be excited, and so it's worth moving forward. So one way to think about it is what you want to do is, you know, there's always fear of change, right? None of us really like change that much. So what you want to do is get from people having a fear of change to a fear of what will happen if we don't change. And that's how you kind of use those two ideas of creating discontent with the current reality, which then creates, helps people, you know, a fear of what happens if we don't change. But then that's kind of a meager way of looking at people's behavior too. You also want to inspire them and say, now let's talk about, you know, maybe it's our moral purpose of why this is important and all the good reasons why life is going to be better for ourselves and for our kids when we get here. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes great sense. And I really I like, I love how you drove it home with the let's imagine. Really, people see what the big picture is and see what our vision is to, to move that forward. Um, when you talk about the sense of community, and every school kind of looks a little bit different, but when you really break it down, are there certain must-haves that every purposeful community school should have? So I think it's hard. So often you talk to schools and they'll say, well, we, we have missions and values and all stuff. The question is, is that really internalized? But one of the things that we also know from research and is that what good schools do is they reduce variability in those really key important areas. So for schools, we look at that and, and we have a, you know, a lens that we call the What Matters Most framework. It consists of things like guaranteeing, challenging, engaging, intentional instruction in, in every single classroom. So let's just, let's just take that one idea. So really what a, um, a good school will do culturally, they would say, you're right, that's, that's really important. And we have to you know, be able to guarantee to any parent, doesn't matter what classroom your kid finds him or herself in, they're going to have a good learning experience. So sometimes we have to help each other, make sure that, that we are using the, the right teaching practices and we're, we're identifying students and catching them before they fall. And so that's really about a culture saying this is important enough that we're going to make sure we don't have wide variance. Because what you see, again, in low-performing schools, we like to call it the um, Forrest Gump you know, uh, box of chocolate effects, that in a low-performing school you never know what you're going to get. Um, when it comes to classrooms in a high-performing school, there's that consistency. It doesn't mean everyone's teaching to, the, to a script or rote learning. It just means you can guarantee high quality, just like you'd want to when you walk into a five-star restaurant. You're pretty much guaranteed you're going to have a good experience. The waiter's going to be good. The food's going to be good, et cetera. Does that make sense, too? 
Yeah, that makes great sense. In, in our district, we always say we want to eliminate the educational lottery. Um, kids walk in and getting the good teacher or, you know, the not. That's why we try to keep consistency within our PLCs. All right. And this is going to bring us to the gold star question, the last question. Okay. A third key responsibility of a leader is establishing a clear focus. Keep the work in conversations targeted on the issues that matter most. And this is what we're going to focus on for our gold star question. If a school leader wanted to earn a gold star for establishing a clear focus for all members of the school community, where should the leader begin? Our answer to that would be, we had done a synthesis of research um, a few years back, looked at hundreds of studies, and kind of used that John Hattie hinge point notion of only looking at things that you know have a, have a tremendous effect. And so for us, we came up with five key ideas from the synthesis of research. And so I mentioned one earlier, which is guaranteeing challenging engaging and intentional instruction. Think of that as like a three-legged stool for teachers, right? We have to challenge kids, but to support them. Um, we also have to be really smart about our teaching practices. We have to know why we're doing what we're doing. So that, that's probably one of the number one things to focus on because it's well within the purview of schools to handle that. The second piece, then, we talk about um, curricular pathways to success. So it means, um, first of all, having, um, you know, Bob Marzano talked years ago about having a guaranteed and viable curriculum. Have a curriculum, make sure you're enacting it. Um, and that's critically important, too. When you look at schools, again, that are beating the odds, almost always their narrative began at some point with getting their curriculum house in order. So those are two critical things. You might not think, think of those as like the blocking and tackling if you're a football coach <laughs> of your school, right? Get those things done. Get them done really well. Sometimes people want to move on to the next fancy thing. Um, Mike Schmoker talks about this. Sometimes schools want to um, like throw out the playbook and start over. He used to be a football coach, and he would say, but that's like coming up with a new playbook and still not really having your blocking and tackling down. You're going to run the new plays just as poorly as the old plays. So really, that's, that's crucial. Um, okay, so think about it as like the center, right? Curriculum and instruction. No surprise there. Research backs all that up. But the other thing is we know that not every kid's going to come to school equally prepared, right? Um, some kids are, are, are going to need additional supports. This is never about blaming the victims, but it's about saying let's, let's confront sometimes those facts and say which kids are falling behind. Let's catch them before they fall. We also know from research the longer you wait, the harder it, harder it is um, to catch kids up. When you think about that, just sort of also like a Maslow's hierarchy. So obviously there's, there's important physiological things. There's cognitive learning things. But also then how do you begin to build a culture um, of a growth mindset and think about the social emotional aspects of student supports as well. So we kind of wrap all that around there. And then we say around the next four, the fourth area would be creating a high performance school culture. And that school culture really is in service of those other three things, right? So we want a school that's pulling together um, that has a Kaizen culture when it comes to data, right? Um, and that's important. And then finally, we, when we looked at our big study, we were also looking at, we, were asking the, at, we had been asked to answer the question, is there a role for school districts? Um, so if there's any superintendents listening, you'll be, you'll be pleased to hear that we found, yes, there is a role for school districts. And their job is really to create this kind of high reliability um, environment where you're looking at data all the time in, a, like I said, a very Kaizen way. Let's find, let's, you know, every defect is a treasure. But also, let's think about creating really solid pipelines for educators so that we're developing talent all along. So I would say those are the five key things to focus on. And sometimes we find that leaders aren't focusing on those things or, more importantly, they're focusing on too many things, like literally dozens of things in their school improvement plan, 
which is a recipe for doing lots of things poorly, right? So just a handful of things usually is, is always, it's always better to do a few things well than a bunch of things poorly, right? Excellent. Thank you for sharing. That's a great starting place for educators who are looking to get that gold star. Thanks for listening to this episode of ASCD Learn, Teach, Lead Radio. Learn about Brian's books, including The 12 Touchstones of Good Teaching and Balanced Leadership for Powerful Learning at www.ascd.org backslash books. Make sure to check out Brian's column in each issue of Educational Leadership Magazine. Before we go, I want to share how the ground underneath flipped learning has shifted and why the future of flipped learning will be very different from the past. Flipped learning has reinvented itself into something called Flipped Learning 3.0. Three forces are driving the change that has moved flipped learning from being just another teaching tactic to a mega teaching strategy that supports all others. To learn the five things that distinguish Flipped Learning 3.0 from the flipped learning most of you know today, Click the Flip Learning 3.0 button on your screen for a quick overview. Or, if you're listening by podcast, go to www.flglobal.org backslash FL3. Visit the site now to learn the minimum you should know about Flip Learning 3.0. You've been listening to ASCD Learn, Teach, Lead Radio. This program is produced by Accretive Media for the BAM Radio Network. Thanks for listening.